Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast's Summer Sessions. My name's Andrew Popel. I am the producer and the presenter of Final Draft, broadcasting from 2SER every week in Sydney. And in our Summer Sessions, we are going to be looking back into the Australian Classics Book Club. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. All across the summer, we are going to be delving back into the archives and looking into the Australian Classics Book Club. The Australian Classics Book Club is a panel discussion exploring a great work of Australian fiction. It is a chance to rediscover lost classics and uh, get a little bit of insight into the times, the influences and the authors. Starting us off is the very first episode, going back now uh, about six or seven years. David Winter, uh, then an editor at Text Publishing, joins me as we discuss Madeline Sinjin's The Women in Black. Good morning. You are tuned in to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Final Draft, and I am, of course, Andrew Popel. And right now, it's a moment that we have been building towards a new segment, something of a new direction on Final Draft as we explore the literature that has perhaps helped define our nation. Welcome to the inaugural Australian Classics Book Club. And I'm joined by David Winter. David's a senior editor at Text Publishing, who are our generous benefactors for the Australian Classics Book Club with a range of 100 Australian classics in their Text Classics range. Welcome to Final Draft, David. Thanks, Andrew. Hi. Oh, it's great. Great to have you here. And David, we have the pleasure of hosting the first Aussie Classics Book Club. We're going to be meeting once a month on the last Saturday to discuss a different novel and its contribution to Australian literature. If you want to join in, you can tweet along using the hashtag Australian Classics. You'll find us at Final Draft 2SER and at text underscore publishing. But without any further ado, let's talk about the books. And we're beginning with Madeline Sinjin's first novel, The Women in Black. And The Women in Black takes us back to Sydney of the late 50s and Goods Department Store. And there we enter the realm of ladies' cocktail frocks and the rarefied air of model gowns at the zenith of the silly season and the onslaught of the post-Christmas sales. Each day, the women in black must adorn themselves in matching dresses that efface their individuality whilst outfitting Sydney ciders for the party season and dealing with personal struggles, basically of being a woman in a man's world. We have Lisa, the newcomer to the department. She's awaiting her leaving certificate results and before she even considers uni, has to convince her father that women even need an education. Faye must confront the fact that her single life of freedom is not everything that she wants, especially when all the men are buffoons with only one thing in mind. Paddy's boorish husband has disappeared, but does she even want him back? And Magda, seemingly the most together of the group, living always on the fringes because she's a refugee from Europe in the post-World War. That is the women in black. And David, who was Madeline Sinjin? Uh, Madeline Sinjin uh, was uh, quite an obscure figure for much of her life, uh, although th- that was not necessarily what she's de- destined to be. Uh, she she grew up in uh, quite a famous family. Her father, uh, Ted, was uh, a renowned lawyer in Sydney, and he became a Liberal MP. He famously stood up to two Prime Ministers, Holt and later Gorton, and uh, earned a lot of fans by doing that, but also got himself into a fair bit of trouble, you could say. Um, 
Madeline Sinjin uh, was one of his daughters, and uh, uh, her mother died when when Madeline was twelve, I think. Uh, she was a uh, she had come over from France. Her parents were uh, Romanian Jews who had escaped uh, pogroms, I believe. And uh, Madeline's mother figures large in her life. It, this is a critical break when when this death occurs and Madeline is sent off to boarding school. There's a rift with her parent, uh, with her father. And to cut a long story short, she ends up in England spending many, many years living in a council flat in Notting Hill before Notting Hill was the, uh, the place to be and uh, doing odd jobs, really just surviving. And by the time she came to some prominence as a writer in the 1990s, she was... Uh, she was quite quite sick. She was dependent on an oxygen machine, although she didn't stop her smoking. And she wasn't really interested in doing publicity either. So she really is quite a, uh, a curious figure. There was a moment in her life where she might have burst forth, uh, along with many other uh, people from uh, the University of Sydney in the early 1960s. So there was the gang that included Jermaine Greer, Clive James, Les Murray, Robert Hughes, John Bell, Richard Walsh, all those famous people who so dominated the cultural landscape uh, in Australia and abroad uh, in the second half of the century, 20th century. Um, Madeline Sinjin sort of retreats, and it's only with the women in black that, uh, you know, she sort of bursts forth with uh, sudden creative work. I think she was in her, her early 50s when she wrote it. And then quite quickly she wrote another three novels, and the one of those, I think the last one, uh, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So she actually became the first uh, Australian uh, woman to be shortlisted for the Booker. So it was quite a significant achievement. But I think by that point, Madeleine Sinjin didn't really consider herself Australian anyway. Uh, she was very caught up in her French heritage through her mother, and she had lived in England so long. So she had become sort of almost more English than the English uh, living in her little council flat uh, with an angry cat and an oxygen machine. Um, so that is my fairly long introduction to, uh, to, to Madeleine Sinjin. She's a fascinating uh, character and I'd urge people to, uh, to read more about her because I think she's as interesting as the, uh, as the, the novels that she writes. Yeah, and she gained a little bit of a, a reputation as, as being perhaps a bit snobbish, not, um, not overly fond of her Australian heritage. And in fact, The Women in Black is the only novel that she set in Australia. I, I was really struck as I was reading it. It was about halfway through when I, I thought, I better do a little bit of research. And I realised <coughs> this, this novel had been published in 1993. Yeah. So complete was I in, the, in her world that I just, I had assumed that she was writing at or soon after the time that she had set. And so complete is is the picture and and amusing. I've I've heard this described as a comedy. Yeah. But then there's also so much going on. Do you do you see this as just comedy, or is there much more in the way of satire and commentary happening in the Women in Black? Well, I think it's absolutely both, Andrew. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's uh, it, it, it's it's a work that uh, functions so well as uh, as as a, an entertainment. You know, you can sit down and be charmed by it, and it it's quite bubbly and frothy. Um, but just like any really good uh, rich chocolate, uh, there's once you bite in, there's a little bit more there. And uh, I think, in some ways, particularly in the uh, 
first half of the book, it's really quite scathing about aspects of Australian society in the 50s. I completely agree that uh, you wouldn't know it was written in 1993. It feels uh, you feel utterly immersed in in the period. So, um, for, for a start, she she absolutely executed that perfectly, and I think that allowed her to probably uh, exorcise some of her demons about growing up in that period. Because the men, in particular, in this book, who are all really in the background, are pretty dreadful. And uh, you know, you get the sense that she she really was. Um, uh, running a ruler over Australian society, and she didn't like, I, I think, much of what she found there. Um, but then you have the, the the influence of the so-called new Australians, the the refugees coming in, the, the Europeans or continentals, as they're called in the in the book, and were called in the period. And uh, there's this really quite charming uh, interaction between. Um, between the old world Europe coming into the new world Australia and uh, and the effect that it has on uh, on the people who are swept up in that. Yeah, you've picked up on on two threads that I want to explore a little bit: the the male characters and how they are really almost almost plot points, and our point of view is is exclusively through the women in black, but but also this idea of the Continentals, the refugees, so Magda, her husband Stefan, mm-hmm. Rudy, and the juxtaposition of the uh, the Anglo-Australian characters and these um, uh, so-called Continentals. And Madeline Sinjin really sets up this tension of uh, the Australians are almost boorish there, their concerns seem, you know, facile or very petty. And then, then you have Magda, you have Stefan, who will, they speak freely, they discuss philosophy. And I, I really felt like she was exploring something about our attitudes. She would have been writing, so writing in maybe, we don't know how long this was written over, but um, thinking about this perhaps through the 80s and then into the 90s, there would have been new waves of migration to Australia that were being considered and migration around the world. How much of it do you think Madeline Sinjin was actually exploring the idea of that sort of movement around the world and, and the way it's accepted? I'm not sure about how much she would have taken into account um, post-50s uh, migration, uh, unless she was considering the effects on on England, which of course had different patterns of of migration uh, in and out of the country. But I certainly think that she was very determined not only to to uh, portray a period where she was growing up, and you know I guess we can see perhaps something of herself, and it's also been said her her best friend in the character of Lisa, who is the uh, the school leaver who's who's brought into the um, into the department at Goods, uh, but I think she also did want to to comment on on Australian attitudes to uh, to migration and that post-war period. And it is such a critical juncture juncture in Australian history. You know, really, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, there was such a change with with this migration from Europe and. The effects have generally been considered to be extremely good. You know, this is, uh, in some ways, it's, it's all telegraphed here in the Women in Black. You know, when you meet these, uh, the, the men, the European men, uh, they're charming, they're convivial. As you say, they talk freely. They talk about art and literature. Uh, they bring exotic food and wine. Uh, it, but it's all done naturally. There's, you know, it's it's just part of who they are. And 
the, the Australian men that we've that we've met so far in the book are described as sort of standard issue bastards, and you know they're really pig-headed, and as you said, they're trying to hold women back. So it it, it probably, if we boil it down to this, it sounds a little heavy-handed, but I think that the book is sophisticated enough in its execution that you don't you know you, you can enjoy the way that that is done. There is something of it, and maybe this this comes to the idea of it being a classic that. Despite the fact that Sinjin was writing in England about reflections mm. of her own life um, a generation almost before, that there is resonance through what happened in Australia in the 80s and 90s with uh, waves of immigration from Vietnam, from Lebanon, yep. and now again in the 2000s where we, you know, for those who come across the sea, we, we have this arduous, um, you know, torture run of acceptance in society if if we grant it and she really picks up on that um but creates just such such lovely characters in magda stefan and rudy that we can't help but think how wrong maybe we're going yeah i i think that's right and you know she she has cottoned on to something about the way that migration uh works and the way that integration works which is that you know it's often by food that we get to know people from other cultures and so there's this beautiful thing running through uh, the second half of the book with, with when Lisa has encountered the, this exotic food which is uh, pickles and salami and you have the uh, Anglo-Australians kind of slowly coming around to this idea of salami and I think there's this great line where um, uh, Lisa's mother says oh, well I'll have to get some of that I'm sure there's salami in Chatswood somewhere you know <laughs> um, so it's uh, you know, it's that very uh, obvious thing of breaking bread with someone and then uh, getting, you know, getting to know them and and realizing how you know you, you do have these commonalities and you can be influenced and in turn influence them. Uh, but you're absolutely right to say that uh, it's a problem still unsolved. You know, um, this book is sort of very at peace with the European migrants of the 50s and 60s. Uh, it sees that as a very uh, positive, benign kind of thing. Um, and uh, we know that with successive waves of migration, some have been incredibly successful and others, uh, we're still going through a really uncomfortable phase where there's a sort of um, dominant uh, Anglo-Australian identity that wants to assert itself and, you know, wants to, if you like, to put these uh, new migrants through the ringer until they, you know, can be finally accepted or whatever that means, you know. Mm. A little bit further on from the scene you just described, uh, where where Lisa's mother says she'll she'll have to find some salami somewhere in Chatswood, uh, there is the scene where Lisa and her parents are sitting down to to have a meal. Lisa's just got her leaving certificate results, and her father, picking up the salami, comments, "What's this then?" And <laughs> yeah. says, oh, "I guess I'll just have to. I guess sorry, I think I guess I can get used to it." And you mentioned before, the the male characters are just. With with exceptions, Stefan mm. and Rudy, obvious exceptions, are are just standard issue bastards. They're almost they're almost cookie cutter type mm. characters. Frank um, Frank Paddy's husband, who just up and disappears. There, nobody even finds it particularly remarkable that he's done this thing. They just talk about how men are men are just like children, and it's so so beautiful the way you have uh, all of the female characters realised, and then the men barely have have the depth in which to drown themselves, which they seem constantly <laughs> trying to do. Uh, what did you think of the, the characterization and the, that sort of separation there? 
Uh, look, I, I find it fascinating and enjoyable. I mean, one of the threads that seems to have run through the classics is that uh, the text classics is that we have found all these twentieth-century books by women writers that do tend to portray uh, Australian men in a not particularly positive light, and. Uh, those writers have often been a little bit written out of the story of Australian literature and, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to say that one thing was contingent upon the other, but it does seem slightly suspicious. So in in The Women in Black, the book is uh, light enough and joyous enough that um, we can kind of tolerate the hopelessness of the men, even though they are pretty cookie-cutter. In the works of, say, Elizabeth Harrower or um, Mina Calthorpe's The Die House or Olga Masters or Amy Whitting, uh, other writers who have published in the classics, men tend to be far more... Um, they're, they're similar. They're often more richly drawn and they're often far more villainous. And so in this book, um, there is a sense of re- slight redemption for a couple of the male characters. They do actually learn something because early on Magda tells us the people here they know nothing you know she's referring to Australians generally by the end we feel like some of these men have you know we've got them perhaps if not into three dimensions then then close to and uh, it definitely uh, sits sits nicely with some of these other works that I've just referred to where you get much scarier characters who are cut from the same kind of cloth this sceptical of uh, intellectualism sceptical of outsiders, determined to hold back women. You know, it can it can seem like a, a roll call of, of awful characteristics, but I think it is probably a fair reflection of um, much of Anglo-male Australian society at the time. Yeah, and some of those titles, I believe, we are looking forward to on later, um, later Australian Classics Book Clubs. We are talking about The Women in Black by Madeline Sinjin, and you are listening to the final draft Australian Classics Book Club. Um, and so I want to pick up on this idea of the, the shallowness and the, the lack of depth of the male character. We start to get a little bit of dimension to them and compare that to the very narrow roles that the, the female characters, and I'm going to, going to come to Lisa in particular, mm-hmm. are expected to fulfill. We very early on get a sense that she is someone with a unique intelligence and yet she, uh, she and many of the, the female characters seem to be expected to fill, fulfill this sort of good wife, good woman role. And it's really, really interestingly, I think, juxtaposed between her fa- infatuation with the model gown Lisette. So the, in the model gown section, there are all these unique dresses that uh, cost an absolute bomb and most people can't afford. Uh, and literally the women in black are selling these dreams of femininity and style to their customers. They're, they're locking people into this sort of role that they're supposed to perform. And then we have Lisa, while she's infatuated with Blazette, with she's also continually reflecting on every small drama and triumph that she encounters that this must be what life really looks like. We have this sort of seemingly perfect naive wonderment that's going to ultimately grow and she's going to be the most perfectly rounded character beyond the covers of this book. We we don't get much further than a few weeks of her life. But I was really interested in the way uh, Sinjin uh, allowed her female characters to burst out of the societal expectations that were constantly being put on them. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the really uh, nice things about this book is that uh, it... it um it offers you nothing too saccharine or pat, uh, but it does 
as you close close it, you feel that you know there is there is hope for these women and uh, Lisa in particular, who kind of realizes over those few weeks that there is just a chance that she can have it all. She probably doesn't realize how intelligent she is, but she has been captivated by poetry. You know, there's an early reference to uh, her being besotted with a William Blake poem that she discovers at school, and then over the, over the time. Uh, at the department store, there's that particular frock that she spots, the, the Lizette model, and she aspires to own that. And it, it's not a superficial thing. I think it, for her, it becomes to resemble. It, it comes to um, to to represent really her her growth, her, her coming out as an adult. But more than that, probably um, kind of style, glamour. Um, you know the sense that you can be intelligent, but you can also be out there in society and and meeting people. And she's really been a, a wallflower uh, up until uh, we meet her, and you know, and she begins this job. I was really fascinated by the role of Miss Jacobs, and I love your thoughts because very early on, she's established as something of a benign mystery. She's subject to you know the occasional bored musings of her colleagues because she she arrives and leaves the same every day no one knows where she lives no no one knows what she does what even what's in the the contents of her string bag with brown wrapped packages and then she's constantly in the background she's something of a recluse and then she gives i I thought perhaps the most stirring speech of the novel to lisa about standing up against sexist expectations and just to put their noses out of joint for them, referring basically to the male establishment. Do you think we can read anything into her almost snobbish persona, given that something similar was attributed to Sinjin, and the role of this speech to our our entire reading of the book? Yeah, I really like that idea, um, Andrew. That's the, 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 it's a sort of walk-on from walk-on role for the the adult Sinjin, uh, the almost the author kind of coming into the book, and it, you know, in a sense, the the speech could be didactic, but it, but it's not. It's so stirring, and it's because it's such a shock. You knew all along that this uh, this character had hidden depths because everyone alludes to it. She's such a mystery woman, and uh, it turns out she's been she's been watching everything. So, and she's she's sussed it all out, you know. And she's she's absolutely a fan of of Lisa, and it's a really it's a really nice moment in the book, and it, it could tip over the edge, but it's just it's just just so I think, yeah. It is. I, I felt I felt though that these little bits of Sinjin emerged um, towards the end of the book. There's also the really really sort of funny tongue-in-cheek deprecation of university life. Lisa must finally... Lisa Lisa Leslie, we haven't even talked about yeah, the fact yeah. that Lisa, Lisa wants to change her name to identify herself and individualise herself. But she, she's got to confront her dad, though. Her dad says things that would be absolutely shocking to us now uh, about women even needing an education. Yeah. He didn't even want her to finish her HSC, but then um, he de- talks about she can go to university, but if she hangs out with any of those libertarians, which <laughs> it really has to be noted, that was that was Madeline <laughs> Sinjin's own set when she went to university around yeah. the same time. Yeah, absolutely. She's out of the house without a, without a second look. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, th- I, I suspect that um, Madeline Sinjin was, uh, was always born to go to university, so she she did not grow up in the kind of kind of household that is uh, described in um, in in this book. Although you know she had very different uh, troubles to contend with. You know I think it was a very very difficult way to grow up. But yeah, I think she she knew people in that scenario, and she 
I think it's fair to say that her university experience, her time at, at Sydney Uni, was was really critical to her. And and of course, there was a very famous uh, libertarian um, uh, lecturer there who was kind of uh, who was really influential. And there was uh, there was r- really such a scene. Uh, all the people that I mentioned earlier, all the, all the famous Australian uh, students who then went overseas, but uh, including Bruce Beresford, who I, I should have mentioned because he's. Uh, he's still hoping to film this book, and he knew Madeline Sinjin for much of his life. But there was this fellow, um, John Anderson, who was who led the Sydney Push, and I, I think that's the the reference there. Um, but uh, I'm not quite sure how Lisa is expected to go to university and and kind of not not get swept up in in all of that. Um, <laughs> it's kind of the dawn, you know, maybe maybe a bit far fetched, but we're sort of on the edge of the of the true 60s and the um you know the, the switch over into a much more um permissive kind of culture um, that would occur in the in the late 60s yeah we really are almost looking at uh being on the cusp lisa is on the cusp she is perhaps part of the new generation mm. and her parents are being left behind you mentioned that yeah bruce Beresford is or has been looking to film this um for quite a while now, I think that was something that he'd actually discussed with Madeline Sinjin. And even uh, there's a musical stage production that you guys have got down there in, in Melbourne at the moment. So that's two things you've got now. You've got uh, Ladies in Black and Wonderful Cake Shops, I'm told. Yeah, I know about Ladies in Black, um, which I think opens tomorrow. And there's certainly a lot of excitement about that. Uh, over the film, I did hear a rumour that perhaps it's a little bit closer to happening, but it certainly has been... Um, you know, in the pipeline a long time. I think it would translate to the screen very well. I mean, for a start, it would it would look amazing. Uh, it's uh, I don't know if it's changed. It's a while since I was up there, but I, we're really talking about the top floor of uh, David Jones in uh, Central Sydney, and, and that really um, the, the really opulent bit of that. And I, I think it, you know you can you can imagine it happening, and um, it probably look very good on stage as well. You know, it's uh, it's a book that it can be uh, can translate really well. I think. There's something really cinematic about Sinjin's writing too, which is seems like a strange thing to say for a movie, uh, for a, for a book that doesn't have you know grand action sequences. But I, again, I come back to Lisa. I had this moment towards the end where Sinjin had had really subtly changed the way she spoke and she interacted with the other characters, and I realised it was it was like that moment that you see in the film where the in in many films where the character is is sort of revealed and through subtle visual and and scripting nods you realize the process has com- has been completed and i was i marveled at the way sinjin achieved that yeah and then there are the sort of uh the slightly cheeky references to her filling out a little bit you know because mm-hmm. she was a sort of a little stick of a girl when she came and uh she's achieving glamour and you know it, everything is kind of emblematic with her i mean at one point uh uh, Lisa is over at Magda's apartment and Magda says, you know, you ought to try this belt and this lipstick and the belt is put on and suddenly, you know, her outfit is transformed and there is this sense of transformative experience for a, for a, a young woman or a girl, really, who's becoming a young woman uh, who finally has access to style and, uh, and and kind of can see how that could fit into her life because um, Leslie, because that's of course who she is before she decides to become Lisa, is wearing um, pretty daggy clothes that her mum has sewn for her. So um, she's, she's often feeling kind of out of place and uh, of course other people are sneering at her because as, as cinematic as the book is, and I, I completely agree, it's, it, it'll um, it's very visual. 
the writing is also so, so clever and often so barbed, and the the digs are against character, particular characters. They're never too savage. They're they're always just charming enough, but it is very sharp writing. Mm. And and that's probably just another nod to the fact that this is a classic that we can conceive so easily of a film version that we can cross our fingers and hope it'd be great to see Bruce Beresford realise that the stage version as we've mentioned yeah. so, so many ways that this story is continuing as part of our consciousness yeah absolutely I mean I, um, I, I can't see this being a book that um, Australians would ever not want to read you know it's, it's, it's not dated uh, it, it, it just feels it's so much of its time and it tells you so much about that time and fundamentally it's also so enjoyable. I mean, this was a, uh, a great pleasure for me to reread it having read it many years ago uh, and, and you do find different things on, on another read. I think there's enough meat in this book, enough darkness that you, you know you're never just seeing something that is purely for fun but it is so much fun as well. Mm. And our proximity. I, I don't know if you had this experience, David, but I, I went to Sydney University. So I had these sort of moments of thinking about what it must be like for Lisa to anticipate that. But then also, you know, her generation, how, how they would have translated forward. It was almost like looking, looking back into versions of, well, obviously the city that I live in, but yeah. my own family trying to imagine who would have been these different realisations, even people like Paddy and Frank. Frank being, you know, he, he's the, the cookie-cutter typical bastard who yeah. disappears on his wife. And, I, and then we have this, this sense of a reflowering of their relationship. And it made me think of, in that, in that era of, uh, you know, they probably weren't going to separate and divorce. How many, how many relationships of our parents' or grandparents' age looked like this when they were in their, in their bloom? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. You can find so much of your your past and your city in this book uh, without trying too hard. You know, it just it, it really has these really deep resonances. I mean, um, I'm old enough, and my mother's old enough to uh, to have been of a generation where my grandfather, her father, was a little bit sceptical about her needing a full education. So, there, you know, there there was that um, immediate link there. Uh, I spent some time in Sydney, actually did go to Sydney Uni, and, uh, and one of the things that always struck me about the city was how the layers of history are there, and uh, particularly in the inner suburbs and in many of the areas that are described in the fairly small world of, of the women in black. Um, and uh, I think many of the books in the text classics, uh, well, there a lot of them are love letters to Sydney, really. Sydney is probably the biggest character in the text classics as a whole. Uh, the city is just so, um, uh, it, you know, for so many characters, it's, uh, it's there, it's vital, it's infuriating but lovable, and it has these... Um, it has these awful people, often awful men, but then it has these possibilities of escape and excitement and the glamour even of just, in this book, you know, they, they catch a ferry at one point and um, I forget which characters are uh, on it, but, you know, they'd, they'd forgotten how nice it was to get a ferry across the harbour. And, you know, we've all done that and it is a spectacular thing. So there are a lot of, you know, from those quite small moments through to the bigger things of uh, knowing someone in your family who might have had one of these really difficult experiences, particularly as a woman, you know, it all it all comes through from this book. So. Something of a love letter to Sydney. Rudy does also engage the old Melbourne <laughs> Melbourne Sydney debate. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, I did 
chuckle um, having having moved down to Melbourne and and I guess now I have to call myself a Melbourneian. Yeah, it's a it's a great city, but oh boy, I you know I got to whatever page it is. I think I've got it tagged actually. Page ninety five. They're about halfway through the book, and it, it is hilarious. So it kind of is summarised as Melbourne has uh, really good cakes and a good gallery, um, but it's terrible otherwise. Sydney has uh, an amazing city and setting and uh, has life and vitality, but it's got quite bad cakes and the art gallery is only so-so. So you kind of have a sense of... Uh, I'm pretty sure Madeline Tingen knew exactly what she was doing there, um, and that is that seemingly eternal and rather tedious debate over which is better and, you know... Uh, Oh, who should live where? We could talk about that all day. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> the voice you can hear is David Winter. We are uh, we are discussing The Women in Black by Madeline Sinjin. This has been the first Australian Classics Book Club on Final Draft. David, thank you for joining me and and breaking this down. It's been it's just been an absolute treat. Oh, treat for me too. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for joining me in the Australian Classics Book Club for these final draft summer sessions. Also sending thanks back in time, David Winter, if you are listening. Amazing chats. I always loved the chance that we had every month to talk books. And I hope, dear listener, that you have enjoyed it too. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. We will be back all summer with incredible Australian classics. So stay with us. My name's Andrew Popel and... uh, Till we next meet, happy reading. Bye for now.